This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. This week, I'm happy to share a first listen to Thank You for Sharing by Rachel Runya Katz, a chemistry-filled childhood friends-to-lovers debut romance. But they also asked Leah how she thought he looked in a suit. Leah was not fully comfortable answering that for herself, let alone for somebody else. Instead, she rolled her eyes, which got Neen off the subject of wayward attractions, but also onto another mysticism rant. You randomly met two times after a 14-year estrangement, twice! And yet you still insist there is no fate to govern your life? Start listening to Thank You for Sharing by Rachel Runya Katz now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Gopinski, and my guest today is Deneen Milner, author of the powerful new novel, One Blood, which follows three women from the Great Migration to the civil unrest of the 1960s to the quest for women's equality in the early 2000s. This is one of the best books I've read in years. I've been recommending it to everyone I see, and I'm really looking forward to diving into it with my guest, Deneen Milner. A little more about her. Um, Janine Milner is a six-time New York Times bestselling author, Emmy Award-nominated TV show host, and award-winning journalist who has written 31 books. She's also the editor, editorial director of Janine Milner Books, an award-winning imprint that has published two Caldecott Honor Books, a Newbery Honor Book, the Kirkus Prize for Children's Literature, and a Southern Book Award. A McDowell Fellow, Milner has written essays for the New York Times, Glamour, and PR, uh, which also hosted her critically acclaimed podcast, Speak Easy with Benin. Milner is a graduate of Hofstra and lives in Atlanta with her two daughters and their golden doodle, Franklin. Um, Deneen, welcome to A Bookish Home. Thank you for being here and congratulations on One Blood. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, I, I started gushing before we started to record, but my goodness, what an incredible novel. I you know, had been in a little bit of a reading rut and picked up the book and was just immediately swept away. I had such like, visceral reactions to these women. I've been thinking about them, you know, so much since. And the setting, well, there's multiple settings, but they're so just well-drawn and, and transport you. And the writing is so beautiful, um, which I, I think is no surprise. But um, if you can, I guess just to start, if you could tell listeners a little bit more about um, One Blood and the characters that we meet in this novel sort of throughout the time span. Sure. So One Blood is, I like to call it my heart song because it really is um, a story that's close to my heart for many reasons. Uh, one, The story is broken up into three different books, I like to call them. The Book of uh, Grace, the Book of Dolores, and the Book of Ray. Um, Grace is the uh, teenage unwed mother who has her baby taken away. Dolores, or Lolo, as she's called in the book, is the adoptive mother who raises that baby. And Ray is that baby as a mother in her own right, as a grown-up married with um, with a daughter. And the through line for the story is um, they're all connected through uh, motherhood, right? And each one of the characters is passing along the torch, really, on what love means, um, particularly what love of self and your ability to, um, you know, 
continue to love yourself despite that society at large, family, men, significant others have painted you into this box of um, full of isms, racism, sexism, patriarchy, classism, colorism, all of these different things that um, seek to stifle uh, who these women want to be for themselves. And they're constantly fighting to be that um, and constantly fighting to let their children um, kind of be that, uh, their daughters in particular, despite all of the obstacles. So they're all trying really hard to get free. Yeah, and it's so um, just beautiful and compelling. I feel like there were so many parts that I marked up. The way we're able to watch these women kind of be connected through mm-hmm. the years and, and from child to mother and, and some of these through lines. And, you know, that was such an interesting way to help us understand these characters and get into their heads and understand why they've been raised the way they've been raised or why they've become what they've become. Um, And I wondered if you had that structure in mind right away, or did you maybe just start with one of these characters? How did that kind of come to be? Uh, I'd like to say that I was inspired by, um, by uh, the 12 tribes of Hattie by Ayanna Mm -hmm. Mathis. She did just such an exquisite job of taking the story of one family and then creating what I felt like were short stories for each one of the characters. So the mother and her kids. And I think one of the stories was about a grandkid. And then there was a story um, told from the perspective of family, another family member related to one of the kids. And I just loved how each story stood on its own, but they were all interconnected. And so um, when it came time to write One Blood, I knew that I wanted to write uh, three different perspectives um, because I felt like each one of them deserved their own air. So the the Book of Grace is the one about the mother who has the baby and that baby taken away. I knew that as an I'm I'm a child of adoption, and I wanted readers to feel what it would feel like to be in love with this character and to have this character give birth to this love and then for all of us to um, experience what it means to not know your birth mother anymore, to mm-hmm. have the connection between mother and child just completely broken and you have no idea where that mother has gone. And so in order to do that and do that in a way that didn't feel super abrupt. I felt like I needed to tell her story in and of itself. And then I needed to tell Lolo's story in and of itself. And then you get to see those stories in the story of Ray, but, um, you know, and in a way that answers whether or not nature or nurture contributes to the way that, um, we we are as adopted kids um, and to have each one of those kind of interconnected, but in a way that um, allows them to stand on their own. Yeah. And, you know, it's making me wonder too, as we are 
going into the past um, or the, the more distant past in the um, in the first story and then um, to the 60s in New York in the um, second story, it sort of got me wondering because you, you capture those settings so beautifully and I, I just felt so transported to these different times and places. I wondered if you needed to do a lot of research for those stories in particular and um, maybe what that process was like, if anything surprised you or you know, or if it was challenging to research. Yes. Oh my goodness. So there was, I did so much research. My background is as a journalist and I, I believe deeply in making sure that um, things are accurate and true and factual. And so I, I didn't want to sort of make up what was going on with these characters in a time and space that they existed in. And so I was really, really cognizant of going and finding lots and lots of research about who these women uh, could have been at the time, um, where they lived, uh, the accuracy of, say, Mama as a as a uh, Grace's grandmother, as a uh, a midwife, a granny midwife. Like, what did that mean? So I watched movies. I read books about midwifery all the way back to like the witch trials, <laughs> which was oh, wow. uh, really about the witch trials were really about um, women being healers and um, a medical society that uh, of men that wasn't happy about these women having this control over women. Um, and that, you know, played very much into Grace's story. And so you can, you can feel sort of that, that history and that research in her story. Um, for the book of Lolo, I read a lot about sterilization and government sanctioned sterilization uh, in states like Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina in particular, which didn't get rid of their um, state sanctioned sterilization until sometime in the 80s, which is just crazy that, you know, you could be in a state and the government could decide, yeah, you're not going to be a mom. So we're just going to go ahead and, you know, just sterilize you. And we don't think that you should be a mother. And we don't think you should be a mother because you're black and you're poor. So um, and then, you know, some of the the, the civil rights uh, issues that the three women were standing in the middle of, you know, I did a lot of research on what, there was actually a riot in Brooklyn sometime in 1969, I believe. And a part of the story that uh, that Grace deals with uh, is centered around a, a, in a riot that's like that one that I read about and studied. Uh, you know, when Lolo moves to New Jersey and they integrate a neighborhood in Willingboro, New Jersey, that is a true um you know, piece of history that it was uh, one of those big gigantic developments that was like a new suburb that didn't work out. And so they um, they went all the way to the Supreme Court that people uh, wanted the right to uh, sell their homes, but to put signs to like scare basically all the neighbors into leaving and then selling the houses overpriced to black people. It's like just all kinds of crazy stuff that I, that I found in research, but it was really important to me to make sure that it was accurate. And the crazy part, and I know it's a long winded way of me saying, yes, I did a lot of research, but during the research, I actually managed to find my own birth mother. That's how, oh, wow. Deep, <laughs> that's how deep the research was. Oh my goodness. Um, 
Yeah, there was one night that I just Googled. It was like one o'clock in the morning and I just Googled what was it like to be a a young, unwed teenager in 1968. And I kept coming across these pages for Booth Babies, which are basically people who were born in Booth Memorial Hospital, which was like a, um, a consortium of a series of uh, homes for unwed mothers all across the country. And when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. It was like people, Booth babies looking for their mothers saying, you know, I was born in Booth Memorial Hospital in Compton in 1967. You know, I was, I'm a boy. Uh, I was born on this day. I'm looking for my mom. Or there would be mothers who would say, I gave birth to, you know, like a baby in Booth Memorial Hospital in Flushing, Queens in, you know, 1972. And uh, he was born on this day and I'm looking for him. And it was just like these message boards of people looking for for their family. And I, I was like, wait a minute, that's the name of the hospital on my birth certificate. Booth Memorial Hospital. Oh All this time, I thought that it was just, you know, like Queens Hospital renamed Queens, uh, you know, it was Booth Memorial Hospital renamed to Queens Hospital. But come to find out while I was doing this research that, uh, you know, Booth Memorial Hospital was actually this home for unwed mothers. And that led me down the path to figuring out, oh, I was actually not left on a stoop like my parents told me. I was actually born in a home. And in these homes, 85% of the women were either coerced or had their babies just taken from them and uh, given to families that they were told were uh, more qualified to raise them because they were two-parent two households. Wow. And, I, um, and then later on found out that New York, which is where I was born, allows adopted people to, uh, you know, get their original birth certificates if they can show what hospital they were born in and the date. And I submitted my information and got my my whole birth certificate within like two weeks. And it had all of this identifying information for my birth mother. And I found her within like a week or so after that. Yeah. Because her name was Were you able to contact her? She passed away. She passed away oh, in 2017. Sorry. But what was crazy was that she passed away in the same town that I moved to when I moved to Georgia from Brooklyn. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> we were in the same little teeny weeny town in Georgia. Uh, uh, together, I could have seen her on the line at Chick-fil-A or sat wow. next to her on the pew at church and never known it. Yeah, she was there. That feels like a very, like, I don't know, mystical connection in the book, sort of, you know, just these connections between the mothers and the children. And I absolutely, you know, like I, my, I, I absolutely believe that our ancestors are constantly around us and that my mothers, both my adoptive and my birth mother were here with me while I was writing and just sort of guiding me. There will be times when I would just, you know, sort of be bent over in the computer for hours at a time and then I would pull away and, you know, I would not know how the heck I wrote what I just wrote and I, I, how I'd written what I'd just written. And I, I feel like, you know, the two of them were just guiding the story because it really is about, you know, a birth mother and adoptive mother and their daughter. So powerful. And, 
you know, it's just reminding me some of the scenes that were so visceral to read as a mother were it's Lolo when she's in, um, I think it's some kind of orphanage mm -hmm. and she's first of all, just treated horrifically, but um, also like as a small child being made to care for her baby brother, which then informs, you know, her experience of motherhood later. And I wondered if, I mean, I'm guessing it probably was based on a real place, but I wondered if you could talk about that at all, if these were like real places that you found in your research that were operating like that. Sure. That wasn't a real place, but the circumstances were real. When Before my mom passed away, um, she did reveal to me that when her mother passed away, that she was left alone with her baby brother and that they, um, they were taken in by her mother's best friend. And then her mother's best friend ended up taking them to an orphanage because she couldn't um, handle it. And that the orphanage was really, 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 really bad. And she didn't tell me what happened at the orphanage. She just said that, you know, like it was no place for children. And that was, you know, as far as she went with it. And so, she, you know, like she gave me a snippet of what happened to her after her mother passed away. She was only three uh, when her mom died. And so she didn't take care of her baby brother. She was three years old. But, um, you know, she did end up in an orphanage and she does remember being there for or she did remember being there for quite some time and that it wasn't a good place to be. And so in my mind, I just imagined what would be, you know, like the worst case scenario for a kid in a place that, you know, just didn't, that cared for kids, but didn't really care for kids. Right. Um, and I did find some research about orphanages in New York um, and how terrible they were for black children that they, um, you know, they would literally rent the kids out um, and have them work as like basically indentured servants for other people in New York. And kids would be as young as six, seven, eight years old, and they would be sent out during the day to work and then brought back at the end of the day and then, you know, like fed and put to bed and then wake up and do the same thing the next day. Um, and that uh, there had to be laws passed to stop this from happening and that it was um, the impetus, their treatment was the impetus for the black community, particularly black churches and black civil rights organizations coming together to um, implement a plan to have black children adopted by black families so that they wouldn't be a part of these, you know, horrific orphanages that were basically using kids as indentured servants. And so I just kind of kept all of that in mind as I was creating um, that orphanage for um, Lolo and um, trying to understand how she would get from point A to point B and then from point B to point C, which is, you know, into the arms of a family, air quotes, that was supposed to take care of her, but really just um, continued the trauma for her. Well, as we're kind of thinking about getting from point A to point B, it's making me think of, it's so interesting to kind of get to know this family at the beginning with Grace, and then, you know, so many years later, 
we get introduced to Ray and like follow her into adulthood. And I'm curious if you kind of knew at the start how you wanted Ray's character arc to go um, and just sort of how you approached writing her. I did. I did. I wanted Ray to sort of be the the ray of hope. I know that's so that's so hopey, right? <laughs> that's how I got her name. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I wanted her to, you know, um, rainbows play a, a large part in Grace's story, and they play a, a, a huge part in in my own life like when I see a rainbow I know that my mothers are trying to communicate with me right like I've I've decided that that's what it is like whenever I have something going on in my life that doesn't feel good or my mind is perplexed or there's something that I'm trying to work through rainbows literally um, appear in 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 my vicinity and then I can think clearly it's just the most uncanny thing but it happens and so I wanted um I wanted the theme of rainbows to be a part of Grace's story. And I wanted Ray to be like the literal manifestation of a rainbow for both Grace and for um, Lolo and that she's the one who's going to work through, help help the two of them work through whatever trauma it was that they were trying to um, get past. And so I knew that I wanted Ray to be the healer of, of the three, the one who um, takes the sort of nature of who Grace is and the nurture of who Dolores is, and then make the decision for how she wants to get out of that box that I told you about earlier, how she gets out of that box of um, expectations and is able to be who she wants to be. Um, her Neither of her mothers got to be who they wanted to be. Um, and And she's the one that she's the ray of hope, the one that um, ends up using the experience of the other two to get free. And so I knew where I wanted to go with her story. I wanted her to sort of go through the same, to have the same love for her daughter that Grace had for her, and also for her to use uh, Lolo and her husband Tommy's relationship to figure out how to have her own relationship in the way that she, you know, ultimately wanted to engage with a significant other and create a family and what family actually means and what love actually means in that family. So basically, Ray is the healer. And I knew that I wanted her to end on, you know, like a a more positive note than perhaps the other two did. Yeah, I I loved reading her. I love each of their sections I loved really pre- ending with Ray's I thought was was really wonderful um, yeah. you know, I had I had written down too I wanted to ask about um, the cover because it's such a um, beautiful cover and I wondered um, kind of how that came to be and, and if you could tell us anything about it Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, in the beginning when we were trying to conceive what the cover would be the editor Monique uh, Patterson asked me if there were any particular artists that had caught my attention that I would think would, you know, like do well for the cover. And I gave them a list that included Tawny Chapman, some fine artists that I'm, I'm obsessed with. I love art. I love art so much. And, you know, like some people spend, you know, big money on expensive shoes or a Birkin bag. I take my money and I buy art. And <laughs> 
I follow artists on Instagram and in galleries, and I'm constantly just on the lookout for something beautiful for my walls. And so Tawny Chapman, her name is T-A-W-N-Y-C-H-T-M-O-N, Tawny Chapman. She's out of Baltimore. And um, I follow her on Instagram, and I was always obsessed with her work. She does photography, and then she creates fine art over the photography. And, um, and she was one of the the artists that I submitted as, you know, like, boy, I would love for her to create something for the cover. And so it turns out that Tawny actually had a series of, um, of uh, artwork that was specific about hair. And so she would create sort of these beautiful, take these beautiful pictures, create this art on top of it, and then superimpose photographs of Black women from, you know, uh, earlier times into the big hair of the little girls that she was photographing. And uh, the art director at the time uh, pitched that one to me, the one that actually ended up on the cover. And Tawny asked me for direction on what I thought Lolo, Grace and Ray would look like. And I sent her some pictures and she recreated those faces that are in the little girl's hair and then, um, you know, let us go ahead and, and change up the colors a bit and uh, just, you know, put this gorgeous type on it. And that's how it was born. It was literally beautiful. Somebody on Instagram. <laughs> ah, that's so cool though. And, and just, yeah, it's a gorgeous cover. Um, well, the last thing I, I wanted to talk about, um, you just seem to have a very full and interesting creative life. And I'd love to hear about the imprint you started. Um, it's funny now, I didn't realize at the time, um, I was saying how I used to be an elementary school librarian, I, and I vividly remember, so this was the imprint's debut year, um, but I didn't realize at the time, um, this was your imprint. I remember Crown, an ode to the brush cut. Yes. Um, was getting announced because uh, I always watch the ALA Youth Media Awards and all of a sudden I'm watching with my students and it's getting the Newberry and the Caldecott honor and and we were laughing because when we finally you know had our like final copy of the book it was just covered in stickers <laughs> and um, I just remember like just feeling all the excitement about that and I wondered what that was like and um, just in general how um, it's been starting that imprint and um, and managing all that along with you know writing and everything else. Sure. I mean, that was that day was surreal because, you know, it we already won. I believe we'd won um, uh, the Ezra Jack Keats Book Awards, uh, one for illustration and one for uh, writing. And then, you know, like maybe two weeks later, we heard we got news about the Newberry and Caldecott. And then maybe a month later, we got the news about the Kirkus um, Award uh, for children's literature. And, you know, when I, when I, when that book, what's crazy is that I started that imprint in 2016 on a whim with, um, Agate Publishing, this, uh, this, imp- this, uh, book publisher out of Chicago. And they have this black imprint and, uh, he was looking for a, a person to run, to start a children's book imprint at the same time that I was looking to start a children's book imprint. And I wanted to, to start a children's book imprint because I had children's books that I, that I wanted to write. And I knew other people who had books that they wanted to write, but we couldn't penetrate, um, you know, the, the publishing industry with these stories that weren't about 
they none of these stories were about slavery or the civil rights movement or Black First or Muhammad Ali or Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King. And so, you know, like it was like nobody understood that Black children existed outside of that. And mm-hmm. so I was just like, I'm going to start something on my own. And I knew that I wanted to ask all of my friends my writer friends, do you have anything on your computer that, you know, like you pitched that just didn't get uh, the time of day? And one of those people that I asked was uh, Derek Barnes. And he had Crown and Ode to the Fresh Cut just sitting on his computer. And he wow. said, oh, Lord. and I was like, um, I'm going to need that for my imprint. Are you cool with it? And he was like, yes, I'm cool with it. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then he he knew Gordon uh, he knew Gordon from uh, the illustrator Gordon uh, James from working together at Hallmark they were they were writers and illustrators at Hallmark um, and so Gordon said yes absolutely I'll illustrate it he did it that book was edited and illustrated in the course of like six to seven weeks. And, wow. and, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just making a book and we thought it was cool. And, you know, Agate Publishing put the money behind it to, you know, actually bring it to fruition. And here we were. And so, you know, we did some really great work at Agate Publishing and I'm forever grateful to them for, um, for opening the door to me and saying yes. And then Simon and Schuster came along and they loved what I was doing and said, you know, like, would you like to bring your imprint over to us? And I said, yes. And I said, yes, not because I disliked um, my partnership with, with Agate, but because Simon and Schuster just has a, um, a fuller budget. It has a fuller team. It has a fuller um, history. And I was able to um, pay the authors and illustrators the amount that I wanted to pay them that we couldn't do at Agate Publishing and have a production team, a publicity team and a marketing team that um, is able to uh, put the books out because they just have this storied history of being able to make that happen. And so I went over to Simon and & Schuster and we've been doing great work. I'm so proud of the work that we're doing. I'm so proud of you know, the ability to open the doors to black authors and illustrators who may not have had, um, you know, success uh, getting through the gate at, at some of these publishers. And I'm also super proud that um, since uh, Deneen Milner Books came along, that publishers seem to be, um, you know, opening or being more more um, open to publishing the kinds of books that Deneen Milner Books has always been dedicated to publishing. And I'm not okay. saying I'm not saying that I'm the one who opened that door. Please don't get that deck because I've gotten blowback from people thinking that I, I that I'm too big for my britches or, you know, like I don't give enough credit to other people for the work that they do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a clear you know, line that you can draw from. We need diverse books creating, um, you know, their template for how publishers can be more inclusive and Deneen Milner books creating a template for opening the door for Black authors and illustrators. There's a clear line between those two things and um, what publishers are doing now. That's great. And I I just think it's um, just really cool to see um, somebody have such an interesting and varied 
creative life and um, you sound very busy, but in a good way. And, you know, just my last question, this can be books that you've read on your own lately or books you've been reading for the imprint. Um, are there any books that you would want to recommend to listeners that have re- that you've really connected with lately? Oh, sure. Oh, goodness. Okay. So there's one book that I absolutely have cannot stop thinking about, and that's um, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Wong. That is just a beautiful, beautiful novel that's part memoir, but mostly a novel about a young, it's a coming of age of a, um, an, a young male immigrant who is gay and just, and has an abusive mother and just sort of how he um, how he reconciles with all of those different things to, you know, get free and, and become whole. It's a really, really beautiful book. He's a poet. And so, you know, like I, poets make me sick because they, they write so beautifully. <laughs> when I throw my computer across the room, cause I'm just like, it's so pretty. I need to learn poetry. I can write pretty like that, but it's a really beautiful book. Um, and then, you know, in terms of I'm going to toot my own horn with a series called Stella. Um, uh, that's a Deneen Milner books book. And that book is it, there's three different books. There's uh, Stella Keeps the Sun Up, Stella and the Mystery of the Missing Tooth. And then uh, the upcoming Stella and Roger Don't Want to Grow Up. And it's about a little girl who's kind of I've, um, she was fashioned after Olivia and um, Eloise, sort of like, you know, this mischievous little girl who, you know, does some, you know, cockamamie things that are just funny and interesting and, and very childlike and just very much the way kids sort of look at things. It's by Clotilde Ewing. And um, I just, I adore this series because Stella is just adorable and fun and funny and um, and I love her. And then right now I'm sitting and looking at two books that I actually am reading right now. One is called The Unsettled by Ayana Mathis. If I'm not mistaken, it came out this week, but I got my hands on an advanced reader copy. Um, and, you know, I'm obsessed with Ayana Mathis and I told her to her face um, over the summer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm excited about, you know, cracking that one open. And then this other one that I'm reading is called Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. And it's a memoir by Farrah Jasmine Griffin that weaves in, it's like really creative. It weaves in um, the ideas that inspired like the oratory of like Frank, uh, Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X, Marvin Gaye, the music of Stevie Wonder, and like, you know, um, the literature of Phyllis Wheatley and Toni Morrison and the art of Romeo Bearden, all of my favorites. And so she's um, using their speeches and their their craft and their art and their love of Black people to, to advance her own sort of memoir, her own story. So I'm, you know, like, I love just sort of the, the craft of the book. And, um, and, you know, it's super interesting because she's writing about people that I love. So those are my, my, my faves that I'm doing right now. <laughs> That's great. I will link to all of those. And I'm going to definitely pick up uh, some of those Stella books. My daughter loves Olivia. I'm like, oh, gotta, these look so cute. Oh, yes. oh she's going to love Stella. <laughs> That's so I love Stella. Yeah. <laughs> um, Denine, this was such a treat to get to talk to you. Um, I cannot recommend One Blood highly enough. Um, I also think it would be a great book for book clubs to pick up um, this fall. And it's just so thought provoking. The characters are going to stay 
with listeners for a very long time. Um, and it just, uh, I, I, I can't, it's like the book that I keep trying to hand to everybody and just spoke to me so much. And I just, uh, what a, um, you know, what a feat, what a, um, just wonderful book to have, to have, uh, created. So, um, thank you for being here and for letting us hear more about the story and, um, about the imprint as well. Thank you so much. And if you are with a book club and you're interested in a book club kit for your book club, you can email me at onebloodbook at gmail.com. And I will happily uh, email the kit to you. It has wonderful recipes for cocktails, bookmark, um, Q&A, an author's note, all kinds of um, exclusive information for book clubs. Oh, that's awesome. Wonderful. Um, I hope everybody goes up and picks, uh, goes out and picks up a copy. Um, and best of luck with all the um, projects that I'm sure in the works. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.